Good morning. It's wonderful to be here with you all during Advent, celebrating and anticipating the birth of Christ. If you're um, using the Pew Bible, you want to join uh, reading with me. It's page 886. And I'm going to read John 1, 14 through 17. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth, come from Jesus Christ. This is God's word. Good morning again, church. Let me start with some good news. These flowers here were placed by Sam Diego in honor, in honor of his wife, Helen, for their 29th wedding anniversary. So congratulations to Sam and Helen. Amen. We are in this season of Advent where we, uh, Advent means coming, uh, and so this season is where we remember, we anticipate, we celebrate the coming, the arrival of Jesus Christ. And so we have been in this series in John 1 called The Word Became Flesh, taken from our text this morning. Uh, John is seeking to help us understand not just the facts of Christmas, not just what happened at Christmas, right? Shepherds and angels and the manger, uh, those things are important, but John, you notice, in his gospel does not include any of those facts. It's not that they're unimportant. It's just that his goal isn't to give us the facts of Christmas. It's to give us the meaning of Christmas. It's to help us understand what do those things mean? What is the significance of that baby lying in a manger? What is God up to in sending his son to be one of us? And if you've been with us, you know that John 1, 1 started on the most cosmic level, right? He says, in the beginning was the Word. He doesn't even take us to the beginning of Jesus' earthly life. He takes us all the way back to the very beginning and says, you can go back as far as time. And guess what? The Word was already there. Jesus already existed. And so he starts super high up, cosmic, 30,000 feet level, and then he kind of starts kind of slowly landing the plane. He brings us down a little bit, talking about, um, about the nature of God. He's relational. He's a trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. And then he talks about Jesus being the light of the world. And then he talks about Jesus um, bringing new life to all who believe and receive him. He's kind of landing, landing, landing. Now he gets to the ground level, and, and he says in verse 14, now, now, this word who has always existed, this word became flesh. Flesh and blood right here with us. And so this morning's message is the fullness of his grace. The fullness of his grace. The word became flesh. This verse, just so you know, verse 14 is really the most concise and yet most profound summary of Christmas and really of Christianity in general. If, if Jesus Christ is truly God come down in the flesh, then Christianity is the most compelling message ever, 
And every single one of us must reckon with it. You hear me? If this is true, then this affects your life, whether you realize it or not, whether you accept that or not. Christianity only makes sense if Jesus comes down in the flesh. Our faith literally rests on this reality. And the miracle of the, if, the, if the miracle of the incarnation is true, then guess what? That means all kinds of miracles are true. But if Jesus Christ is not God in the flesh, then Christianity is a farce. It's a fairy tale to help us get through the, this harsh life. It's, it, it, then, then maybe Karl Marx is true that, that, that religion is just the, the opioid, uh, opiate for the masses and, and, and all of that. If the word became flesh is not true, then guess what? Christianity doesn't change lives. It doesn't change eternal destinies. It can't do anything to deal with the evil and suffering in our world. And it's certainly not worth making all the fuss of lights and trees and presents and all that stuff. I mean, what are we celebrating, really, if this isn't true? I mean, do you know, I mean, if you got to CCCC last night, and I hope you come tonight, we have spent hundreds of hours and thousands of dollars planning and organizing and displaying a live nativity with real animals and amazing train sets and a family photo booth and fire pits for you to have nice s'mores and lights and music, and we do all of that. Why? Not just so that we can have these warm and fuzzies that, bring, that Christmas brings us. I mean, those are great and all, but that's not why we do it. No, we do it because the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We do it because if this one miracle is true, then your life has meaning. You can change. You can have hope in life even in death. And if this is true... There is a God who loves you infinitely more than you can imagine and a God who has ultimately dealt with evil and suffering in our world and he did it all because of grace. All because of grace. Let's look at this text and I want to show you how John explains the coming of Jesus with this major emphasis on grace. Lesson number one. Marvel at the mystery and glory of the Incarnation. Marvel at the mystery and glory of the incarnation. Look at verse 14 again. John says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is one of the most important verses in the Bible because it reveals the true nature of Jesus Christ. The one who has always existed from the beginning. The one through whom all things were created. This one himself became a created being. Notice it says the word became flesh. Flesh is a very graphic word. It means literally meat. God took on meat. He became human. Notice it didn't say the word appeared as flesh. He became flesh. God didn't just appear to his creation. He participated fully in his creation. And, and guess what? This, this verse, this message, this reality would have shocked both Jews and Gentiles who were listening to John's gospel, who would have read this. 
Jews never could have imagined that the God that they worship, Yahweh, Jehovah, the one who dwelled in unapproachable light, the one who, who, was, who was so great that, that no one could, could, could even draw near to him, right? the God of Mount Sinai, a God of infinite greatness, they couldn't imagine that this God would ever become human. The fact that any Jew worshipped Jesus is a tribute to the greatness of Jesus. And the Greeks, all the non-Jews of the day, would have cringed when they heard that, that the Word became flesh, that God entered into the physical world because they believed that the spiritual world was good and the physical world was evil, was bad, yucky, right? The goal is to escape the physical world, not enter into it. No God would enter the physical world. You think Zeus would become a man, like a full man? Oh, no. Demigod, yes, but truly man, no. And yet that's exactly what happened in the incarnation. The word never ceased being the word. He never, Jesus never ceased being the all-powerful eternal creator. And yet in the incarnation, the presence of God becomes localized in a particular time, in a particular place, and in a particular person. Everything we know about God's character from the Old Testament, everything that's been revealed is now manifested in this little baby born in Bethlehem. And if you're thinking, that's kind of hard to wrap my mind around, that look, join the club, I get it. The incarnation is marvelous, and yet it is a mysterious truth. Anyone who tells you, oh, the incarnation, that's simple, I get it. They're fooling you. They don't get it. Do you get it? No, praise God, right? We got an honest congregation, amen. We, we don't get it. If you're asking, how can an infinite God become finite flesh? How can an uncreated being have a beginning point in his human nature? My only answer is this. If God is truly all-powerful, if he spoke the universe into existence, it, listen, if he could play, get, place galaxies in, in our universe that are so far away that thousands of years later we are only now developing the technology to understand and to see that those exist, right? If the same God placed animals in the ocean, in the aquatic life that are so deep down that only now are we going far enough to be able to discover, oh my goodness, there's a new species. And God said, yeah, I created it from the beginning. Now you're catching up to me. If the God who could do all of those, don't you think he's quite capable of doing the impossible? That's what the angel said to Mary. Right? Mary, the mother of Jesus, the one who carried Jesus in her womb, the one who had to really be like, how is this possible? And she asked that, and the angel said to her, in, in Luke 1, 35 and 37, and the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And then verse 37, for nothing will be impossible with God. And my, my, what I'm telling you, what I want you to feel and to experience is to just simply marvel at this. That's how I want you to respond. I don't want you necessarily to do anything. I simply want you to marvel at this incredible truth. God came down to us. God made himself visible to us. God became a man 
without ceasing to be God. I want you to be in all of it. God wants you to be in all of it. Let me just give you one implication of this doctrine of the incarnation. If the Word became flesh, then Christianity stands apart from every other religion in the world. Because no other faith, no other religion claims that the divine creator became human, and here's the, and here's the point, and is therefore vulnerable. In other words, we worship a God who knows exactly what it's like to live in a broken and sinful world. No other religion says that. No other religion even comes close to claiming that. We, we worship a God who came down and became so vulnerable, he became a baby. Is there anything more vulnerable than a baby? Who's literally dependent on, 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 on other humans to keep it alive. Jesus had to be warmed or he would die. Jesus had to be fed or he would die. Jesus had to be kept safe and go to Egypt because Herod's killing all the babies or he would have died. Think of the vulnerability of God coming down to us. And he lived just like us and he experienced temptation to a greater degree than you and I will ever experience because he never sinned. Right? We experience temptation, but we don't experience the, the fullness of it because we give in to sin. Jesus experienced temptation to the fullest degree, and he never gave in. He experienced evil and suffering to a greater degree than we can ever imagine. God became vulnerable. That means Jesus experienced loneliness and hunger and rejection and betrayal and abuse and torture and grief and the loss of a loved one, and even death. Are you dealing with any of those things today? Christianity is the only faith that says, if you're experiencing any of those things, God knows exactly what you're going through. You can go to Him. He's been there. He understands. Notice it says, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word dwelt is an important word. It literally means, it's the Greek word that means to pitch a tent or to, to, or to tabernacle. It says the, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. John is intentionally using a word that draws our minds back to Israel's history. When God lived among his people in a tent, they called it the tabernacle. God told Moses, my divine presence, my glory is going to dwell in a tent among my, among my people, but in a tent set apart. And in Exodus 40, if you read it, God's glory comes down in the tabernacle and fills the tabernacle and nobody can enter it because his glory was filling it. It was too magnificent, too powerful. Remember at one point, Moses says to, to God, show me your glory. And God says, you can't see my glory, it will kill you. But he says, here's what I'm going to do, Moses. I'm going to, I'm going to put you in, the, in this cleft of a rock and I'm going to cover you up and I'll have all my goodness pass by you. Notice glory is his goodness. All my goodness pass by you and then I'll, I'll kind of take my hand away and I'll let you see the backside of my glory. Why? Why all this protection from God's glory? Why, why can't we see God's glory? And it's at the point from the beginning of Genesis to the end of Revelation is that sinful people can't see the glory of God and live. Later on, after the tabernacle, they built a temple. 
And the glory of God dwelled in the temple, right? The holy of holies, that, that special place. And there was this veil, there was a curtain that set it apart. You couldn't just go in there and see the holy of holies. You couldn't just go in there and see God's glory. Nobody could go in there except the high priest one time a year, him alone to make atonement for sin. And even then they put a rope around his foot because sometimes he might not even come out alive. This is serious business. All of it to show the separation between sinful people and a holy God. And then John says, this God who has always dwelt among his people set apart, this God who is unapproachable in his glory and majesty now has come down in the most personal and intimate of ways. He became a man. And then John says, we have seen his glory. We have seen his glory. In 1 John 1, 1, he'll say, that which we have seen and that which we have touched and that which we have beheld with our very own eyes and our very own hands. Something Moses could have never imagined that when Jesus came to earth, people got to see the glory of God on display. They got to see God's divine power and authority as Jesus walks along and he heals people. He speaks and literally people are healed. And he speaks and, and, the, and the oceans and the winds obey him. And he speaks and, and demons have to obey him. And he multiplies food and he, and, he, and, he come, and he says, I offer forgiveness. You're forgiven. And he even raises the dead. The glory of God, the goodness of God was on display as Jesus lived among the people, marvel at the mystery and the glory of the incarnation. Lesson number two. Don't just marvel, but receive from Him. Receive from God's fullness His abundant, His overflowing grace. Twice John tells us in these verses, verse 14 and verse 17, that Jesus came full of grace and truth. Full of grace and truth. And then verse 16, from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. Do you see the emphasis here is on grace? Yes, later in John's gospel, Jesus will often talk about truth, but here it's incredibly important that you see the emphasis is on grace because John wants us to see right in the beginning of this gospel that, that, that anyone who wants to get to know Jesus, if you want to know who he is, if you want to know what he's like, if you want to see his glory, it's by experiencing the fullness of his grace. Notice the glory of Jesus is made visible because he is full of grace and truth. Why these terms? Why these terms, grace and truth? There's a connection here. Back to Moses. Verse 17, look again. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. John is continuing to connect back to Moses, back to, to the giving of the law. When Moses says in Exodus 34 to God, show me your glory. And God says, I'll let all my goodness pass by you. And then what it says in Exodus 4, uh, 34, God actually proclaims his name. Look what it says in Exodus 34, 6. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord. That's Yahweh or Jehovah. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. The word for grace in the New Testament 
is charis. Sometimes we get names from it, charissa, right? Charis, it's grace. And that word, grace, here in John 1, is actually rooted in the Hebrew word here for steadfast love. That's the Hebrew word we've talked about before, chesed. It means steadfast love. It, it means um, um, uh, a, a loyal love, covenant love. It's the defining attribute of God in the Old Testament. John is saying, you, you see, see Jesus' grace? That's the steadfast love that God has revealed himself from the very beginning. It's his loyal, I'll never quit on you kind of love. It's his love that says, I'm going to give you what you least deserve and least expect. You see, that's what grace is. If you want a definition of grace, and there's lots of good definitions, here's one good definition of grace. It's God loving you when you least expect it and least deserve it. You want a picture of that? You want, you want a real live, help me understand that. Okay. This is the new Grinch movie. Well, it's a couple years old now. Some of you are like, oh, I only watched the original. Okay, well, that's good too, but this one's pretty awesome. Right? You know the story, the Grinch hates Christmas for all, whatever reason, and he's like, I'm going to steal Christmas, and he goes and he steals all the Christmas from the Who's, and he takes all their presents, and he takes all the trees, and he takes all the decorations, and he packs it up in a big bag, and he packs it up in a sleigh, and he goes back to his lair, I stole Christmas, I hate Christmas, I want the Who's to never celebrate Christmas again, I'm done with Christmas, ha, ha, humbug, right? You're a mean one, Mr. Grinch. And then the craziest thing happens on Christmas morning. He comes out to watch them, hoping they'll be crying and misery and, and tears. And they come out and the Grinch sees the Who's doing what? Singing. Celebrating. He didn't steal Christmas. He couldn't steal Christmas. And he's so confused. But in this version, as in the original, Cindy Lou Who, who he's been building a little bit of a relationship with, she goes up and knocks on his door. And he's like all bewildered. What went wrong? I tried to steal Christmas. And, he, and she knocks on the door. And here's what she says. She says, hi, I just came to invite you to our house for Christmas dinner. And he says, what, me? But I stole your gifts and your trees. I know. I stole your whole Christmas. I know you did. But we're inviting you anyway. But Why? And here's what she says. Because you've been alone long enough. Dinner's at six. That's grace. That's grace. Loving someone when they least expect it and least deserve it. That's what God offers us. That's what God's in the business of doing. That's what Jesus came to do. Loving us when we least expected it and least deserved it. He is full of grace and truth. You say, what's truth? Is truth just knowing the correct answers, knowing the right answers? No. Jesus said, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Jesus also said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. That means truth can't just be the correct answers, the right answers. Jesus is telling us truth is a person. Truth is found in the life of Jesus. 
Truth is more than being right. It has the idea of being faithful, being true to what you say, being true to who you are, being true to your nature. And Jesus is saying, listen, I am true because I am true to my nature. I am true to my word. I am faithful. And it goes back again to, to the Exodus story where God says, I am full, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That's the word truth. There it is, grace and truth, steadfast love and faithfulness. Do you see the connection? Jesus, John is connecting Jesus back to God's self-disclosure in Exodus 34. John is not beating around the bush. He's telling us this Jesus that we are seeing with our own eyes and we can touch, who's full of glory, this is Yahweh in the flesh. It's the God who revealed himself to Moses right before our eyes. And not only that, he shows us something more. Because after this striking account of Moses asking to see God's glory, the very next thing that God does is he gives the law tablets to Moses for the second time. And John is contrasting Jesus with Moses. Verse 17, the law came, was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Through Moses, God gives his law to his people. And that was an act of grace. Do you realize that? The giving of the law was an act of grace. The law revealed God's character the law showed us how God created us to live, how he wired us to live. It was a gracious gift. That's why verse 16 refers to us receiving grace upon grace. Look at that phrase, grace upon grace. The first grace was, was Moses giving the law. The second grace was Jesus coming in the fullness of grace and truth. The first grace is Moses giving us the words of God. The second grace is Jesus being the Word of God. Or the first grace is the law showing us God's standard. The second grace is Jesus fulfilling God's standard. That's why if you look in your Bible, there might be a footnote, and it might tell you something like this in verse 16, that you could read it this way. For from His fullness we have all received, not just grace upon grace, but grace in place of grace. The law was an act of grace, but Jesus is a better grace. Moses was the mediator of an old covenant, a good covenant. That was grace, but Jesus is the ultimate mediator of a better covenant, a new covenant, and that's grace. Moses glimpsed the backside of God's glory. Jesus embodied the fullness of God's glory. What am I trying to say? You guys click to the next slide, please. What am I trying to say? In Jesus, we have the greatest grace possible. In other words, it doesn't get any better than Jesus. Christian, listen to me. It doesn't get any better than Jesus. If you have Jesus, you have the best that God can possibly offer you. Do you know that? Do you believe that? I know that most of us are dealing with some kind of difficult trial right now. Either here's how the world works. Here's how this broken world and our broken lives work. Either you're coming out of a trial, you're right smack dab in the middle of a trial, or you're going to enter one soon enough. What would change in your life 
if you were convinced that God has already given you his very best, that the present under the tree this, this Christmas is not going to be the latest and greatest, that whatever happens this Christmas, whether good or bad, that's not going to be the thing that defines your life. What if you actually believe that in Jesus, God has given you his very best? You say, well, maybe you've never had a trial, Mark, because the reality is when we're in the midst of trials, our minds and our hearts start messing with us. And we start to wonder all kinds of things like, Maybe God's punishing us. Maybe he's just annoyed by us. I get annoyed by my own kids. Maybe God's just annoyed by me. Maybe he's so busy dealing with everybody else. I get it. Billions of people in the world, right? He's keeping track of everybody. Maybe he kind of just slipped my, maybe my note that went up in prayer, maybe he missed it and he's like looking around like, what did he ask again? I don't know. Christian, listen to what God is saying to you this morning. From God's fullness, you have received grace upon grace. He withholds nothing from you. He is not treating you the way your sins deserve. He cannot even for a second turn his heart away from you. God has given himself fully to you. And that's how you know that he loves you and that he is for you. God's affection for you never wavers. It never diminishes. He loves you like a parent, not like a a sinful parent like me. He loves you like a parent looking at a newborn baby. If you're a parent or if you've seen a baby, if if you've been in that room and you literally, like this thing that didn't exist outside the womb is now a living, breathing human being. And you 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 lay eyes on that, that baby and you're like, what? This, I, I love that I'll go to die. I'll die right now for that being. I didn't even know that it existed until right now, but I'm going to die for it. Right? If there's something special about, about that child. They, they draw you to them. They, they, it, listen, God's love is like, is like a waterfall. Right? Have you ever seen a waterfall? We saw a waterfall this summer, and man, it's powerful. All this water is coming down, and your sin, and you think, oh, God, God's not, God can't, can't keep loving me or something. God, your sin is like a pebble trying to stop up a waterfall. You think you can stop it up with your sin? No. No, your sin just causes him to keep embracing you all the more deeply. You might not have the reason for all the evil and suffering in your life, But you know the reason can't be that he doesn't love you. You see, God didn't look down on our dark world and say, all right, y'all, here's what you have to do to get back up to me. God didn't send a messenger. He didn't send a warrior. He didn't send an angel or a theology book or an avatar. He sends his son. Verse 14, his one and only son, his special son, King James, his only begotten son. The son proceeds from the father. He's of the same nature, of the same stuff as the father, right? He's one with the father, his beloved son. God sends his one and only son, not a humanoid, but a flesh and blood son. Look what God did to show you his love. He made himself vulnerable. And people saw his glory. 
Here's the irony. I told you earlier that God's glory was displayed in Jesus as he's doing miracles and, and his power and authority. And yet if you read John's gospel, if you take the time and read it, you find repeatedly that the glory of Jesus is not most correlated to his miracles, but to his cross. Did you know that? I can show you multiple times when Jesus himself says, the hour, my hour has not yet come. The hour of my glory has not yet come. When it talks about his glory. He's referring to the cross. The cross in, in God's upside down kingdom, the cross is where the glory of Jesus is on full display. Because it was on the cross that Jesus was fulfilling his very mission to coming to us. His very mission to save us from our sin. Don't you see, that's why the Word became flesh. He had to have flesh in order to die. He had to be human in order to die in our place. Unless God comes down, you and I can't go up. The mission of the incarnation was the crucifixion. The cross is the pinnacle of God's grace and God's glory. God became vulnerable so that instead of us being crushed by our sin... He was crushed by our sin. When Jesus was on the cross, you remember when he was on the cross in Matthew's gospel, it tells us that the, the temple that was there, there was still a temple. They were still thinking that God's presence dwelt in the temple. They missed it. And so on the, on the cross, when Jesus is, is becoming sin for us, it says in Matthew's gospel that the veil that, that separated the most holy place, the holy holies, the veil was torn into as Jesus was on the cross. What's happening there? What was God doing? Here's what it was doing. It symbolized God tearing the separation between us and him. You see, ever since our first parents, Adam and Eve, sinned in the Garden of Eden, there has been this wall between us and God. Adam and Eve lived in paradise. Everything's perfect and beautiful, and yet they still wanted more. Because isn't that what sin does? It always leads us to question God's heart, always leaves us wanting more. And so God sends them out of the garden, paradise lost, right? An angel with a flaming sword, you've lost it, sin, now you're going to die. And that's the world we live in, a world where everything is tarnished by sin. Our bodies, our soul, all the creation groans. And that's our sad story. But then the word becomes flesh. And dwells among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory of God becoming vulnerable, the glory of Jesus dying on the cross. Do you see what Jesus is doing on the cross? He's taking our penalty, he's losing everything from us. I talked about the vulnerability of coming as a baby. That's not the most vulnerable state of all. The most vulnerable state is when Jesus is on the cross. When nobody could help him. And when he's a baby, others can help him. When he's on the cross, he's all alone. Even his own father, he's crying out to his father, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the father says, not in this moment, son. In this moment, you know the plan. You know what you have to do. And I know what I have to do. In our commitment to God's glory through rescuing people, I turn my face away, Jesus, and you become sin who knew no sin. Jesus became vulnerable. He was taking our penalty. The veil in the, in the temple was torn. Why? 
because that separation between us and God was so great that Jesus said, I need to break through. I have to break through. It's a big wall, but I'm going to break through. And he breaks through on the cross. On the cross, Jesus punches through that wall and says, I can come through now. You can come to me now. There's no wall separating us. He takes our sin. He takes our death so he can give us his righteousness and his eternal life. And he doesn't say, all this can be yours if you live a good enough life. He doesn't say, all this can be yours if you're good at ways you're bad and you better do good and you better follow the Ten Commandments and you better be a, a good Christian or a good moral person. No, you can't. The moment you realize that is the moment of revelation for you to come to God and realize that's what every other religion claims and that's not good news. The good news of the gospel is you come to Jesus broken, you come to Jesus helpless, and he says, listen, I take it all and I give you everything. I give you my best. From his fullness you have received grace upon grace, forgiveness, love, life, all by grace. It's a grace, notice what John says, verse 16, that we receive. It's not achieved. And so I just want to ask you, have you received the grace of God in Jesus Christ? I talk to people all the time and they say, oh, I had, I, I had someone visiting. I was watching online, a family member. Listen, I have no idea who's here this morning. I have no idea if you're from out of town. I have no idea if you're from out of the country. I have no idea who's watching online tonight. But I do know this. Everyone who is listening, you have an option. You have an offer of a gift to receive God's fullness, the very best that he has to offer you. And it's better than if he brought physical healing. It's better than if he gave you all the riches in the world. It's better than if you were the most uh, popular person in the world. This is is real life, eternal life. And you can receive it. Even if you're saying, you don't know what I've done. Because I've talked to enough people to know, and I know my own heart, to know that many of us are carrying around the guilt. And I don't know what you've done, and I don't need to know. Jesus knows, and he sees it all. And yet the God of all creation loved you enough to die to take away that guilt. He gave the most valuable gift ever. I heard an illustration this week. A preacher said, imagine there was only one apple left in the world. Just one apple. Just take something like an apple. How valuable would that one apple be? That'd be pretty valuable, isn't it? Kind of priceless. How valuable is the blood of Christ shed for you? It's priceless. It's one of a kind. It can never be repeated. It can never be bought. That means no matter what you've done in life or will ever do in your life, God's gift of Jesus is infinitely more valuable. Your debt is no comparison to the gift that he gives. So believe that and receive that. Admit your sin, turn from it, and receive Christ. That's freedom. That's hope. That's joy. The incarnation is good news of great joy. And Christian, if you can believe the miracle of the incarnation... That God became a man, died, and rose again for you. Then let me ask you, why are you struggling to still believe that he can do miracles today? Is anything impossible with him? I know he hasn't answered every prayer of yours or mine, but you can keep going to him. 
You can keep pouring your heart to Him. You can keep trusting that if God has taken care of your greatest need, if He has deposited a check of of $100 million into your account and you say, God, I need a dollar, can He not provide all things? And all the while, let this present grace of God that sustains you now, let it deepen your longing for His future grace. In other words, let the first advent of Jesus deepen your hope for the second advent. When he comes again, and he doesn't come as a baby, he comes as a conquering king, as a mighty warrior, and he comes and he does away with all evil, and he destroys sin and death, and he takes care of Satan once and for all, and death is no more, and it says literally that he'll wipe every tear from our eyes, and he'll right every wrong, and he will literally make all things new. Let your heart long and ache for that day because as we sang, He is born to raise the sons of earth, born to give us second birth. And you know what? 10,000 years from that moment when you're with Him, 10,000 years after the very first moment that you experience His joyful presence, you will still be celebrating the incarnation and you'll still be able to say, wow, I remember from your fullness, God, you gave us grace upon grace. Let's pray. Jesus, we don't want to hide. We don't want to cover up. We need your grace. I thank you that you've given us your very best in the word become flesh. I thank you that this morning, for those who know you, that you are eternally and unquestionably for them and not against them. I thank you for sustaining our church. I thank you that you've led us through another year. We're bruised, we're beat up, And yet here we are, as Paul says in Ephesians 6, having done all to stand. God, we only stand in your grace. That's all we have to go for. And for those who don't know you, Jesus, I pray that today, the beauty, the mystery, the wonder, the glory of the incarnation would be made real, that you would open hearts to accept your gift, that this would be the day of salvation. This would be the day that they receive the greatest gift of all. God, would you enlighten and enliven our hearts today, all of us. May the joy of the Lord be our strength. Even as we now approach communion, the Lord's table, God, help us to be ever sorrowing yet ever rejoicing as we give thanks for this indescribable gift. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.